from the Apostle Paul. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, and this is in Philippians chapter 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, and together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thank you very much for the reading and may the Lord's Spirit continue to bless his word to us this morning. I want to share with you, friends, from this uh, passage of Scripture that we've just heard, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, where he's praying for the folks he's writing to. Philippi was a city in Macedonia, which was a province in northern Greece. Paul and his colleagues had pioneered the Christian church at Philippi during their second missionary tour. They had instructed and encouraged the new believers, and now, some years later, Paul writes to them from the city of Rome, where he's a prisoner. The Christians at Philippi had sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to Rome with a gift for Paul, maybe several gifts, but certainly a gift of money principally. And so Paul sent back this warm letter of thanks and encouragement to them. And in it, he tells them about his prayers for them. First and foremost, we realize that they are prayers of thanksgiving. That's how he starts, picking it up at chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's so very thankful to God that these folk have been his partners in spreading the good news about the Lord Jesus. When Paul had first arrived in Philippi, there were hardly any spiritually minded people, only a small group of ladies praying by the riverside, but from that small beginning, others came to faith. We don't know how many, but we do know they had hearts for spreading the message about Christ. 
anything they could do, therefore, to help Paul with his missionary tours, they were willing to do it. And when they heard about his plight in the prison at Rome, they sent him money through Epaphroditus. He would need it to pay for food. Nothing was given on the house to prisoners in those days. They had to depend on the goodwill and generosity of relations or friends. Perhaps they sent other items to him also, clothes, parchment scrolls or books as we call them nowadays. And Paul is quite confident that they'll go on serving the gospel and the needs of gospel workers, confident that God will continue the good work he'd already begun in them and through them. And so he says in verse 6, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That phrase comes lower down again later, the day of Christ or the day of Jesus Christ. It's shorthand in the New Testament for the coming again, the return of the Lord Jesus in glory and the bringing in of his full and final kingdom. But there he is, expressing his confidence that God will develop their good work, maybe in new and surprising ways, but all was according to his plans for them. I suggest, friends, it can be like that for you in your church life and community here at Lum. It can be like this for all the Lord's people, wherever they gather, wherever they engage in the service of the gospel. There are well-known words in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of you will know them. They give us such reassurance. As the Lord says there, I have plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope and a future. Isn't that something to be thankful for? Can't we look forward with anticipation to joining in with the Lord in his plans and purposes? As a church, you've entered this period of pastoral vacancy. But that need not prevent you doing partnership in gospel work. <clears throat> it may be that uh, some of you know the buzzword that's going around our Baptist denomination at present. It's the word transitioning. If you know what it means exactly, I'd like to hear from you. Well, <laughs> I've got some ideas. I've got some ideas. Literally, I suppose, the word means a process of changing positions. And what it seems to be initially is making some structural changes to the way Baptists run their regional associations and also the ways in which we group together locally. There's another buzzword for that now, networking, relating with real practical help and encouragement to each other locally in a given area. And all of it with a view to becoming more effective in gospel work and witness to our communities. Locally then, transitioning can mean preparing to do what's new, which enables us to reach new people for Jesus. I know that in some places churches are praying for God to show them his plans. And they're finding that when he does, they can then be 
that much more effective in new ways for his kingdom. We all know that so many of the folk around us are total strangers to church worship and total strangers to the Christian message. So we must transition in order to be relevant and effective and to reach out to them with the gospel. The gospel itself never changes, but some new methods might be needed to accompany the best of the old. And it may well be that guidelines and resources soon become available to our churches so that people can look at them and say, perhaps there's something here that can help us with a new project or a new type of activity that will be to the blessing of those who are not just even on the fringe, but even further beyond that at the moment. It may be that uh, there are those among you who've heard also about the current Lancashire Festival of Hope. Anybody? No, is it? One, one over here. One, one over here. Uh, news and details may not have reached this far uh, because it's, uh, it's something which is very much based in the Blackpool area and the Fylde Coast but is actually spreading in terms of the interest uh, right throughout the county quite remarkably. Um, the leadership is coming from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and it, the <coughs> project will culminate in September with three days and evenings of events at the Blackpool Opera House and Winter Gardens. And it's expected that uh, Franklin Graham, son of the late Billy Graham, will be preaching uh, at three special evening gatherings in the Opera House. And uh, right now, the uh, preparations are approaching what's called the Christian Life and Witness Stage. And this is a seminar, or in some cases two seminars, open to everyone and anyone, free of charge, at no less than 14 different venues up and down the county of Lancashire. Lancaster in the north, through to Wigan in the south, the Fylde Coast in the west, and out here as far as Burnley. So there's going to be one opportunity to uh, hear or participate in this kind of seminar just over the hill at Burnley. Padium Road Methodist in Burnley on Saturday morning, the 19th of May, so I've read. All the details about this kind of thing are naturally readily available online. But it did occur to me as I was preparing for this morning that here is something which even just in its seminar form, before the actual big meetings in Blackpool in September, can be of particular help and blessing in terms of enlarging our witness, enlarging our partnership in the gospel. I do think the seminars are very likely to be helpful with the one-to-one -one witness for Jesus, sharing our personal faith, our testimonies, and our understanding of the message. And sometimes, you know, it's that one-to-one -one that turns out to be the most effective method of all. Partnership then in gospel work, working together to spread the good news of the Lord.
Paul was very thankful that those Philippians were his partners. Let's move on. Secondly, Paul's prayer of request. This is at verse 9 of the chapter onwards. There are several items of prayer in, in, in his requests, five items in fact, and I'm going to touch on all of them for a few moments with you. Because I'm suggesting they are features of Christian virtues which are the necessary foundation for successful gospel partnership. These virtues that Paul prays about, they really matter for going ahead in gospel partnership. So, the first of the five, love, in verse 9. I think he means the love that Christians have for each other. We express it by bearing each other's burdens and sharing each other's joys. We express it by valuing others above ourselves so that we look, look out not just for our own interests, but also for the best interests of others. And that implies practical service to one another, love. Then his second item is that our love will be according to knowledge and depth of insight, or as one translator puts it, wise insight, knowledge and wise insight. I think he means knowledge of the truth, truth to believe, and a true way of life to accompany our beliefs. It implies that we get to know our doctrines, the doctrines of our faith. We learn a bit of sound Christian theology. We develop a clear outline in our minds about what we believe and why we believe it. Knowledge. Because only when we believe what's right can we do the right in life's decisions and choices and life's demands and duties. In the context of Christian love, this knowledge and insight, knowledge and wisdom, surely means that we shall not be insensitive, nor ham-fisted, nor cheaply sentimental. Surely it means our love will be regulated by wise insight or wise discernment. For her last birthday, my wife Phyllis received a very unusual type of birthday card from a friend. On the front of it, in large red letters, it said, Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in the fruit salad. <laughs> well, there you go. Wisdom is knowing what to do and what not to do with the knowledge we have. A little quote for you from Dr. Don Carson. The Christian love for which Paul prays here, it's regulated by knowledge of the truth and by comprehensive moral insight. And then he, <coughs> he explains his phrase, moral perception across the entire range of life's experiences. These constraints ensure love's purity and value, he writes. Truth and moral insight. They don't stifle love. 
They encourage and help truly meaningful Christian love that can be a real blessing and help to people. They ensure love's purity and value. Consequently, what we say to each other and do for each other will be for the best. That's Paul's third item as you go down to verse 10 in his list of requests. He implies that we shall advise and guide each other correctly for the best in ways that really matter. Then his fourth item is that we accept each other's loving advice. Are we as good at accepting advice and counsel as we might be as offering it to people? As we accept each other's advice, so we progress in this readiness for the day of the Lord. As I read it to you earlier, the day of the Lord's coming again. We become increasingly pure and blameless for that day, the day of Christ, as he calls it in verse 10. And then there's a fifth item. As he prays at the end, in verse 11, that we become filled with the fruit of righteousness. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I wondered what to say about that one. And I thought, well, surely the phrase fruit of righteousness, he's summing up the previous items that he's listed. But maybe he's also including any others we care to think of. And I suppose the natural thing to think of is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And some of you, no doubt, could recite the whole list of nine flavors in the one fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22. A list of nine that complete the whole picture of Christian virtues. So I thought it worth perhaps just for a few moments to do a quick revision of those nine flavors in the Holy Spirit's fruit. I'm lumping the first three all together. Love, joy, and peace. Because love we've already described. No need to comment further. Joy and peace. We experience that through meditating on Scripture. We experience it through worship and fellowship together. I thought of a song that seemed to put it so well for us. We're accepted. We're forgiven. We're fathered by the true and living God. We're accepted. No condemnation. We're loved by the true and living God. On that basis, the song goes on, there's no guilt or fear as we draw near to the Savior and Creator of the world no guilt or fear. There is joy and peace as we release our worship to you, O Lord. Joy and peace because no guilt nor fear, only worship, thanksgiving, praise to the Lord our God. Then next in this list of nine flavors, long-suffering, often rendered patience, forbearance, endurance. A little quote from Jeremy McQuoid here, a pastor and writer in Aberdeenshire. Christians need to realize the hard edges of the faith. 
while there is joy and peace, if we expect an easy ride, we'll soon become disillusioned. The hard parts of the ride require us to pray for patient endurance. And then there's a group of items there, flavors, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Kindness, that's being considerate and generous. Goodness, that's to do with benevolence, a word in the original that's linked to contributing to a charitable cause, to a missionary organization, something like that. Faithfulness speaks for itself. Loyalty, steadfastness. The eighth of the ninth is meekness. Well, I'm, I'm taking the older translation, meekness, there. Modern translations tend to use the word gentleness, but I don't think that's quite strong enough because this is a word very much about commitment to Jesus as our Lord. Nothing to do with weakness. Meekness is surrender to the Lord, submitting to Christ's lordship in personal life, family life, church life. We surrender to him, to his leadership, his guidance and direction in all things at all times. That's what makes the Christian life so meaningful, so satisfying, so worthwhile. And then the ninth one, self-control or self-restraint. Something especially relevant when we might feel angry about anything or angry towards anyone. That's the time to pray, Holy Spirit, keep me calm. Holy Spirit, make me gentle and forgiving. I suppose, friends, that ideally we should be expressing all these nine flavors in our characters and in every relationship and circumstance and of, of our lives. All together, they express the, and this is a quote, the Christ-like nature in its fullest development. Quoting a Christian writer, Henry Drummond, the nine flavors in the one fruit of the Spirit combine them and they reflect or express the Christ-like nature in its fullest development. So we should aim to avoid being inconsistent, to avoid any lopsidedness in our Christian characters and conduct. Last weekend, we had uh, our family from Wiltshire come to stay. And one evening at dinner time, we had a fruit salad, trifle. Really nice, attractive fruit salad trifle. At least it looked that way. But there was a problem. One half of it contained no fruit. The other half contained all the fruit. So, those who got helpings first didn't get any fruit in the fruit salad. Those who had the helpings later got all the fruit. A lopsided trifle. Christian fruitfulness all around should be our aim. No half time, no half time Christianity. No being fruitful in some situations but not in others. 
I came across a pointer in this direction from Dr. John Stott in his own personal testimony about the fruit of the Spirit. He wrote that every day in his morning prayers he prayed, Holy Spirit, may your fruit ripen in my life today. And then he writes that he would recite this whole list of nine flavors in the fruit of the Spirit every morning, the whole list back to his mind and memory. So he had a daily reminder of what his Christian life should look like all around, wherever he would be going, whatever he would be involved in, whoever he was meeting or mixing with, a daily reminder of the total fruit of the Spirit. So there we have Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1. Detailed suggestions how to pray for ourselves and to pray for each other. And as the prayers are answered, everything will be to the glory and praise of God. And part of the honor and praise to the Lord is that we become worthy of that partnership in the gospel. We become worthy to be involved in telling the good news and spreading the message. When people see that our lives match up to our words and our message, they become more willing to listen to us, more willing to consider what we have to say about the Lord. Finally, there's the reference to Jesus Christ at the end of verse 11, indicating that all the virtues and qualities, they come to us, they're produced in us by the power of that the Lord Jesus himself gives us through the inner strength that we receive because he's at home in our hearts by his spirit. So it's in his strength that we keep on adding the virtues and qualities to our Christian lives. So that's another thing to pray for, isn't it? To pray daily for a fresh supply of the Lord's enabling as we strive to live up to all he requires of us. Later in Philippians, in chapter 4, Paul testifies, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do it through the strength that the Lord himself gives me. So can we, friends. So can all the Lord's people.